1: Love that song. I love that song.
3: I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. Hey, you're here. Glad you made it. This is the I'm in love with that song podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Brad Page. This edition of the podcast is another in our Albums That Made Us series where I invited guests on to talk about an album that had a big impact on them. Now, sometimes you find that an album you love is actively hated by everybody else. How do you react to that? Does that change how you feel about that record? Do you reject the album or secretly listen to it when nobody else is looking? Well, rather than be embarrassed about it, my guest on this episode, Craig Smith has embraced this unpopular opinion and proudly carries the flag for this album, which leads to a very interesting conversation. Craig is the co-host of a number of shows on the Pods and Sods network. He's smart, knowledgeable, and funny, and I like to think of him as a friend. Here's our conversation. Well, Craig Smith, welcome to the I'm in Love Without Song podcast. Thanks for coming on and doing this with me. Thank you. There's an underlying theme to pretty much every episode of the show, and that's about the way music affects our lives, how it can inspire you, give you new perspective, and sometimes even change your life. Every once in a while, I like to invite a guest on to talk about an album that kind of had that effect on their life and when i asked you you said you wanted to talk about sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band which i thought great except you didn't want to talk about the beatles album you wanted to talk about the soundtrack album from the Sgt. pepper movie which that's a whole different thing so craig tell me why you picked this album and how did it become such a significant record for you
0: Okay. Uh, First of all, let me just say to your listeners that you're all familiar with mild mannered, Brad page. When I dropped this on him, I saw a side (laughs) of Brad page that I wasn't ready for. Uh, so I, I just want everybody to know that that exists. Um, I hope you don't have to experience it. I did so that you don't have to, um, I mean, obviously I'm not ignorant of the fact that it is a, a much maligned, hated record and film. Um, I was born in 1973, so to me at five or six years old, this was a staple of HBO. I grew up in a, a home that had HBO and Prism, and uh, it was, you know, there's just that pocket of films that just represents that time for me, the champ, my bodyguard, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Like it's, they were on several times a week and, this was an event every time it was on. Mm-hmm. I was completely transfixed by it as a child. And it's one of those things that just, it's its your formative thing. You know, I've revisited it several times in the years that have passed since then. Sometimes I'm like, Oof, and sometimes I'm like, you know, I like the feeling I'm getting from listening to or watching this. So it started for me as loving the film. And I can get in that mindset and I can kind of put aside the obvious things that are wrong with this whole project, including the idea to do it in the first place. (laughs) Um, Most decisions powered by cocaine end up with some sort of problem. This one had lots of them.
3: Yeah, well, in so many ways, it's the perfect storm of the late 70s. It is, it's, right. it's complete excess with a Beatles soundtrack under it. And
0: like I was saying, I can, I can get in that mindset. I, I don't, when I see the film, I see the problems with the film, but I don't think it's bad. You know, the film is filmed beautifully and the soundtrack in some spots is executed amazingly. There are definite missteps, but it was uh, it was a combination of of a couple of things. The first record that I ever owned was Kiss Double Platinum. I got it for my 5th birthday. Got Pink Floyd The Wall for Christmas 1979, and what followed was either Roger Whittaker's All the Best or Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. When I fell in love with this film, in probably 1979 or early 80 depending on when it was shown my parents knew that i was obsessed with it and at some point i had asked for it and they brought home what you would have wanted the beatles sergeant pepper's lonely hearts Club band i was horrified (laughs) i was more horrified when i put the record on this is not the disco that is all around me. I'm growing up in Saturday night fever and, and the soundtrack of this. And I put that on and it was like, uh, Whoa. And I, I don't know if it was at that point that I connected that these were Beatles songs. It obviously had to happen somewhere, but my love of the Beatles wouldn't happen for another five years or so. But when I listened to the Beatles version, I was like, what what's with the vocals coming out of one speaker? And why does this sound so empty, like, I, and I know people are tuning out, but like when you're used to the basslines on the Sergeant Pepper soundtrack, Paul McCartney, as great as he is, he isn't playing that. Uh, So for me, at that age, it was a a small awakening to the Beatles that would grow in in years later. But the soundtrack, just still, I get feelings when I see the cover. I think the cover art, that logo, is just. Amazing, I'm transfixed when I look at it. I took tracing paper and I traced this album cover as much as I did rock and roll over. I learned how to play Beatles songs from a songbook for the soundtrack, which I still own. It still has my school um, classroom number on it because I brought it into music class and had the teacher like play strawberry fields forever. So uh, and I have the training cards like it was a very important thing to me as a child. And it still makes me feel
3: things as an adult. I think the interesting thing and probably the the key piece to all of that is the fact that you saw the film and heard this record long before you ever heard the original Beatles material. So this is your introduction to all of this music, right? I knew none of these songs before the Sgt. Pepper film. And that's, in general, that's always such an interesting thing when whatever it is, it's your first introduction to something. It's just the idea that, you know, when you get exposed to a particular album first, like the live versions before you hear the studio versions, it's always those first ones. They're the ones that imprint themselves on you. Brian Jacobs and I talk about it on one of our McCartney episodes
0: in the series we did on the podcast. And he mentions the same thing happening with him. I think it was, it might've been Venus and Mars versus like Wings Over America live version. And we were talking about kind of how the one you hear first is the one that you, I I mean, this could have gone a lot worse. I could have seen Give My Regards to Broad Street before I actually heard like the 1976 Silly Love songs. But it's absolutely true. What you hear first, and I mean, those were very formative years for me. I would say that it was Kiss and the Sgt. Pepper soundtrack that put me on a hyper-focused road of music all the time. It was all I thought about when I was in school. I would, even as far back as elementary school, I would be trying to draw the Sgt. Pepper logo while I should have been learning cursive. You know, it was... It, it just completely took hold of me, and still does, to degrees that are probably very unhealthy. Uh, but it's how I was formed, and that's kind of the thing that brings me joy more than anything, is getting lost in details and lost in music. And this was, this was definitely one of the very first.
3: Thinking back to when you were a kid watching the film listen listening to the record, what were your favorite songs of the record? Which, what were the things that really captivated you. It's hard not to go with something like
0: Golden Slumbers.
4: Golden slumbers fill your eyes Smiles awake you when you rise Sleep, pretty darling, do not cry And I will sing the lullaby once there
0: was a way to get back to I would also say that this was the film, along with The Champ, uh, that at the age of six, seven, made me feel deep feelings about things. Golden Slumbers, The Long and Winding Road, I, I still, it might be sacrilege, I think I prefer The Long and Winding Road, done by Peter Frampton.
4: The long and winding road That leads to your door Will never disappear I've seen that road before it always leads me here, lead me to
0: your door. I mean, it's a song I love, but I don't know that I've ever really loved it as much as I did seeing the movie. You know, if you were talking to like six-year-old me, I probably would have said the same about a day in the life. Like in the film, that's a huge, it's a big uh, moment, emotional right? Yeah, it's a huge emotional thing.
4: I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade, and though the news was rather sad, well I just had to laugh. I saw the photograph, he blew his mind out in
0: a car. And of course, you know, the, the 1967 A Day in the Life, you, you can't touch it. There, there's also something that, you know, people are very precious with the Beatles. In some cases, I think I am, and in some cases, I'm not. Um, but there are people out there that are absolutely like, these are songs you shouldn't touch. A uh, Day in the Life might be one of those. It's, it's, it's a tough one to get right. But I also feel like on this, they kind of came as close as they could. And uh, stuff like Sandy Farina doing Strawberry Fields Forever, I still think is great.
4: I'm going to Strawberry fields Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry fields forever Living is easy with eyes closed Misunderstanding all you see
0: the original is kind of on its own island, as far as I'm concerned. It's one of my absolute favorite Beatles songs, but I love her voice and I love the arrangement of it. It's it's totally kind of turned on its head. The end goes into this crazy Moog thing that it doesn't try to replicate the original crazy Mellotron ending, but it it kind of recalls it a little bit. It's it's things like that. I I loved that. Um, I want You, She's So Heavy. I think, again, I've really learned to appreciate the Abbey Road version, but I think that that's a highlight on here. Things on the album that fall completely flat. Like anything not sung by, and I'm sure you have listeners that can't stand the Bee Gees or whatever, but anything not sung by the Bee Gees or Peter Frampton, you know, the the stuff, the George Burns stuff, uh, Steve Martin doing Maxwell Silverhammer, you know, the stuff that's wacky stuff for the film doesn't, it's a tough listen when you're just listening to the record. I think a lot of the BG stuff is solid. Also, having said that, it's very sobering when you put this record on because the intro to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band sounds so anemic that every time I put this record on and I forget every time when the record starts, I'm always like, this is going to be a very bad trip because this does not sound good. But it really kind of fleshes out really quickly after that. And there are there are things that people would consider sacrilege, like the what's done to here comes the sun. It's one of the funkiest baselines I've ever heard. But i love it you know i don't know that it can touch the original but i think it stands up on its own and i i also am a very firm believer that if these songs were not known as beatles songs i think strawberry fields forever when i was listening to it this morning i was like this absolutely would be something you'd hear now like it's done that well but it will never get the respect it deserves because of the album it's on and what it's wrapped in um, so I, I think there's there's a lot on this album that that really really holds up.
3: Yeah, I mean I I largely agree. I think the furthest you get from the Peter Frampton and Bee Gees tracks, the worse the record gets. Yeah. Um, the the Wait, closer you it gets, to this? what you actually listen to? Oh, this? of course. <laughs> uh, well,
0: you know I wasn't quite sure.
3: I haven't so. I saw this in the theater in whenever this movie came out. 78. 78. So that would have been my eighth grade year. That period is when not only were the Bee Gees huge with the Saturday Night Fever, but Peter Frampton was huge. You can't imagine today how big Frampton Comes Alive was at the time. He was every bit as huge as the the Bee Gees were. yeah, And so I was not really a big Bee Gees fan. I was not a disco fan, but I was a big Peter Frampton fan. And so that's what got me to see the movie. And in fact, I wasn't really much of a Beatles fan at this time. And we'll talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit more, but so, yeah, so I saw it in the theater and I bought the soundtrack record and I don't know that I've listened to it since then. Uh, until i did uh, a couple days ago prepping for this show and i think my opinion hasn't changed all that much yeah about the record the record is better than the film yeah um the acting is largely atrocious I mean, it's
0: hardly, it should be said that there is no dialogue in the film. Right. Nobody talks. The
3: songs speak for the characters. Right. George Um,
0: Burns narrates, but all of the characters sing the songs.
3: Right. You get this kind of over the top silent movie type acting, right? Because they can't speak.
0: Which, which Morris Gibb is great at.
3: (laughs) But listening to the record i mean there's some things on here i look well got to get you into my life is by to me by far the best song on the record got to
2: get you into my life
4: My
0: life my life. Yeah, um, I, I was remiss in not mentioning that it, as a kid it wasn't one that got me, but now it's like, oh yeah. It's
3: absolutely outstanding. One of the all-time best covers of any Beatles song. And I mean Earth, Wind and Fire, just fantastic. And it's such a great track. And interestingly, it's the one track on the record not involving George Martin. Because yeah, Martin I was bring produced that up everything uh or co-produced everything else on the record you know god i love george martin but um i don't this was kind of more of a stain on his career than a feather in his cap but yeah he um, was
0: not uh he was not complimentary of this after and disowned it i do wonder um i didn't kind of dig that far into it but um was got to get you into my life maybe recorded aside from this like was i don't know
3: I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, I know it's on the Earth, Wind & Fire Greatest Hits record. I don't offhand remember if it was on any of their studio records or if it was commissioned specifically for the movie. I'm inclined to think it was commissioned for the movie. Yeah. But I don't know yeah, that just for the, a fact. Yeah, just the... Um, the-
0: thing about it being produced by him made me think that i i wonder if it was like an extra on the greatest right. hits or something you know what i mean
3: yeah i yeah i don't know you kind of wonder how that came to be if he just said i'll do it but i'm gonna do it my way and yeah you're gonna you'll get what you get and <laughs> right. which was a smart decision on his part because that is is beyond the film it's just a, a fantastic version But beyond that, probably probably my favorite track would be Getting Better. It's good, yeah. That's a great version of that song, you know, comparatively anyway. you know that I love Aerosmith and that you are not a fan. Um, I wasn't even going to bring it up, but I do like this version of come together. Okay. That was co-produced by Jack Douglas, their producer. Um, Yes. So that's the only other track that is not fully produced by George Martin, but he does get a co-producing credit on that particular track. Right. Um, But yeah, the further you get from The rock bands, Bee Gees and Frampton, the closer it gets to Broadway, the the schlockier it gets. I mean, a lot of these people, I don't know that I've ever heard anything else from them ever again. Diane Steinberg. Yeah. Uh, She was in Stargard when um, uh, my girlfriend and I did a podcast
0: on the film which that is a relationship tester. If somebody will not only watch the, it with you, but, but talk about it for an hour and a yeah. half on a, a, behind a microphone, a uh, definite keeper. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine had mentioned that he had the star album and that he was a huge fan of it. I've never heard it. I'm, I'm definitely curious, but I just never got around to it. But, uh, yeah, Sandy Farina, I don't, I don't know that she was heard from again
3: yeah. after this. Yeah which
0: i mean i uh, what uh, what do you think about like her voice I, I mean those songs can be offenders in terms of arrangement mm-hmm. but uh, did you feel that she did a good job on those songs strawberry fields forever and I here F- comes the i
3: think her voice is fine
4: let me take you down because i'm going to strawberry fields. nothing is real
3: You know, a lot of the arrangements I'm just sort not really into. Again, it starts to feel more Broadway yeah. to me. Looks uh, like she
0: did have a couple singles after that, but, but not much else. Yeah. Also, I, I it may have been my first crush. She may have been my first crush. So we have to factor
3: this in as well. Sure. Yep. That's important. Mm-hmm. Another, and it also another might
0: be why I don't like Steven Tyler.
3: <laughs> Cause he killed her or whatever.
0: I mean, huge spoiler, but <laughs> yes.
3: So maybe that's yeah. where it all comes from. It could be that would, that would explain a lot. Another film around this time is kind of like that for, for me was was Greece. Really? I had a oh, I was totally in love with Olivia Newton John in that movie. Well, that, come on. I completely understand when it comes to uh when it comes to Greece. Yep. Um the other thing that drives me nuts is the <laughs> is the vocoder.
0: I was gonna say, yeah, the stuff like she's leaving home.
3: Uh, especially it's it's completely- especially inappropriate or or just obnoxious on that song Yeah, like Mean Mr. Mustard. Yeah, I care, like, okay, like- it's still gimmicky on Mean Mr. Mustard. Mean Mr. Mustard. it's so of its time right the yeah. vocoder but yeah. on she's leaving home it's so inappropriate for that song
0: the song is so much more than than anything involving a vocoder it is right. completely you know any even kind of unnecessary in the film
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh to have it but it's it it's a definite unfortunate spot because that song does deserve more. It's an absolutely beautiful song. It was weird to me thinking as I was listening to this this morning, like I feel so far removed from the Beatles. And when I was listening to this, I was like, this was only eight years after the Beatles broke up. Right. it, It feels, it feels so fresh still like the, the breakup in terms of the timeline. And you know, I, I don't often think like, you know, John Lennon was still alive at this point. Right. Like he like it, it, it's so weird to kind of think of it in that in that context. It's kind of and I don't know why they're just like things I don't think about it often, but that I think are really interesting about it.
3: Yeah. I mean, really, this movie, the Sgt. Pepper movie is really just let's take a bunch of Beatles songs and see how we can write a story that fits all these, so we'll have a character named Strawberry Fields, and we'll have a guy yeah. named Mister Mustard, and what? But it doesn't really a
0: jukebox musical.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't really think about it that way, but it's probably one of the first, maybe the first jukebox musical.
0: It, it, it could very well be. I, I'd have to think about it, but it's yeah. it's definitely interesting. See, it's groundbreaking. I knew we'd get there.
3: <laughs> yeah. It was such a box office flop. I mean, it, it practically ruined Peter Frampton's career.
0: It did. And I mean, I, I think the BGs as well. Uh they I mean they It had hurt a them, it hits. hurt
3: them a little less, I think, but they I mean less. nobody came out of this thing without a stink on them.
0: Sure. Well, disco the disco backlash is really what hurt the BGs, but uh, yeah, I mean, this certainly didn't it help. contributed to that. Yeah. And I, I, it was interesting to me because I didn't even know all this. Uh, And it wasn't until like years went on and I learned that it was like so reviled by people. And I was completely blindsided by that. I had no idea. And then like, you know, as years went on, like I posted something about it this morning and it will just attract everybody that wants to shoot it down. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I
3: had no idea that it would, that it had this kind of reputation until much later. But that's. That's what makes the record important is Yeah. Is your memory of it, you know? Yeah. Your experience yeah. of it. Well, one of the things that when you mentioned this record, and talking about how this was kind of your in to mm-hmm. the Beatles catalog, it made me think about kind of a record that was that way for me, which was the Wings live album Wings Over America. This has come up on the show surprisingly uh, more than I ever would have thought. The era of the record and tape clubs. Oh, yeah. Columbia House and the RCA Record Club, of which I was a member of both. And I've talked about it on this podcast a number of times. And it's really reminded me just how important those record clubs were to my early, early exposure to music and collecting records. And for those that don't remember, you'd see an ad in a magazine where you could send in a dime or a penny and you'd get 10 albums. And you had to agree over the next year to buy like four records or whatever it was. It varied, whatever the deal was. But it was a great way to get a whole bunch of free records. And then usually you bought your required allotment of four or seven or whatever the hell it was. And then you'd cancel your membership and then you'd re up again and get 10 new free records and, and keep going like that. Yeah. And that's how I initially built my record collection. And uh, some of the first records I got were Frampton comes alive. First Boston album queen day at the races and wings over America was in there. Now, um, is this
0: 1976, or is this like this, at a point after?
3: This would have been 76, 77. Um, okay, so it's fresh. It's fresh, because what inspired me to get that record, Maybe I'm Amazed, was a single at the time, and it was such a great single, and that's what uh, put it on my radar. And that was my introduction to virtually all of these songs, because, again, it was one of the first dozen albums that I owned. And at the time, I preferred those versions over the Beatles versions. He does a half a dozen Beatles songs on the record. But yeah, so, you know, when you talk about a record that kind of, like, that was my in to the Beatles catalog. Um, Sort of these modern versions, even though they were live, just, you know, in general, it's a more modern sound. And to this day, Wings Over America is one of my all-time favorite records. It's probably my favorite live album of all time.
0: It's it's definitely my favorite live album of all time. I absolutely... I think it's McCartney at... I mean, I feel like he's had a lot of peaks. 1969 is one of them, and it's huge. But there's something about live McCartney in 1976, that voice, mm-hmm. and just some of the most kick-ass rock and roll on that record that... You know, I I don't know that I was expecting. This is a record I first heard in like 87, right after I got into the Beatles in like 86, got my first CD player in 87. And right after, uh, I think all the best was my first McCartney CD, Press to Play, my first McCartney vinyl. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then shortly after I got Wings Over America, and I I don't even know why, um, but that was one that I might've found it on sale or used or something. And um, I couldn't believe it. Uh, the just it, it's got the best one, two, three opening punch.
3: Absolutely
0: uh, of a live album. What, yep. Maybe my my Venus and Mars into rock show is fine, but one of the my favorite moments of recorded music is when rock show ends and he starts playing the drum beat to Jet. Mm-hmm. That segue is masterful.
2: Hey, I got, I got.
0: It's so simple, but it, it is just, I mean, it really amps you up for Jet. And
3: uh, oh What a God. way to open it's, a show. I mean, it's it the really perfect is. opening for oh, a show. And, I know exactly yeah, what and the is. band kicks ass. I, I,
0: yeah, they do. Um, I know exactly how I got into it. I can't believe I forgot this. I had a, um, a cousin who I called my uncle who was a drug dealer. Uh, I was not aware of this and had a collection of Beatles that was probably like tens and thousands of dollars. He had given me a VHS that was like six hours long, had uh, the Bangladesh concert, it had Magical Mystery Tour, pretty sure it had Let It Be, and it had a rock show. And I was blown away. That is where I first got a whiff of this stuff. And that's what made me by the CD. I can't believe I forgot that detail. But yeah, it was it was seeing just the opening of the show and being like, oh my God, like this is this is McCartney in 1976? Are you kidding me? Like this is this is a superhero right here.
3: was blown. He looks so great. Mm-hmm. I I I love his hair. I, I love him playing that Rickenbacker. Oh um, so great. Yeah I, even like that painting on the inside the gatefold album when you open it up there's a painting of the band performing yeah. and I just I remember you know staring at that the double neck Ibanez guitar that yeah. Denny Lane is playing in that painting. To this day, I lust after that guitar. <laughs> it's on my dream: win the lottery, buy that guitar list. But yeah, I, I totally agree that the standout thing on the, on across the entire live album for me is McCartney's vocal performance. I think he was at his peak as a singer at this time, late seventies. He could scream better than ever and he could pull his voice back be delicate he could hit the falsetto in one second and the next minute belt out a you know a full on scream he was just perfect uh, yeah i think his performance on maybe i'm amazed is maybe my favorite vocal performance of anyone ever it's it's up there i just think it's perfect hey, boy, hey. Agreed.
0: And that guitar solo by Jimmy McCulloch is oh one God. of my favorites. The, watching him do that. He he's, it's like butter. He's, mm-hmm. he's, it, 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 I saw it on, um, there was a VHS called the Paul McCartney story. I think it was mm-hmm. from 1986. Yep. And it had clips in it and it showed a clip of maybe I'm amazed from rock show. It was sped up. It was probably, you know, the frames per second, uh, from Powell or whatever. Um, the, the way they had to kind of transfer it back then. But watching him play that solo, I was just like, there's there's no effort there. Like that that is just coming out of him. And he's he's not thinking about it. He's just doing it. Like and even when I see it now, I'm like, that is the smoothest goddamn guitar performance. It it I've is ever seen.
3: so great. I mean, McCartney composed the solo, but to me, Jimmy McCulloch's solo versus the one on that mccartney played on the solo album it, it's it doesn't even compare i mean it, mcculloch's tone is fantastic the way he beautiful yeah he ekes these little bits of feedback to sustain at the end of i mean it's just the phrasing everything about it is the perfect guitar solo with mccartney's vocal is the perfect vocal i mean it's it's just un, untouchable And as great as Paul is as singing through the the album, to me the secret weapon of that album is Jimmy McCulloch. His guitar solos are fantastic throughout the whole record. Just great Completely tone, great, great performance. Um, never overplays, but he's totally hot when when he gets his moments to to throw a lick in. Just fantastic. That guy had a tragic story.
0: I, I was just going to say, what what a tragedy! What a I yeah, mean, what a
3: waste, frankly. Yeah.
0: It, it, yeah, it really is. So much promise, mm-hmm. you know. It's he—he he was kind of perfect in that band. <laughs>
3: Virtually every song on Wings Over America is better than the studio version, not counting the Beatles tracks. Although I would say I prefer this version of Long and Winding Road over the one on Let It Be just because I think, frankly, I think it's a better vocal performance, but I also think the horn section arrangement is great, so much better than what Phil Spector did on strings.
0: the Weirdest cover ever, Richard Corey.
3: I know, right? <laughs> like, where
4: did that come from?
3: <laughs> must be a Denny Lane thing. It has to be, yeah.
4: The paper sprints his picture almost every place he goes. Richard Corey at the opera. Richard Corey at the shows. And the rumor of his parties. And the hockey's ho- ho- on his. You really must be happy with everything is gone But I work in this factory
0: There is one song that I do think, I think that Brian and I, when we talked about this album, we didn't do an episode on it, but it was part of a series. The one that does come to mind is Band on the Run. I don't think I've ever heard a live version of Band on the Run that I loved as much as the original. Yeah, you're probably right there. Yeah. There's just like a kind of magic on that that track. Right.
3: There's a studio magic that you can't replicate. uh, Yeah. But like
0: everything else, I think I I take the live version or at least that live version
3: of Jet is better. Oh, God, what, yeah. You know, and one of the things that makes this record so great is that he has a real horn section. Uh-huh. And that, those live horns add a lot. They do. Um, they do. I, I kind of wish on his more recent tours, he would have brought a horn section out with them.
0: Yeah, I feel like that would be a slam dunk. He had one, I'm pretty sure he had one in 79 also. <laughs>
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, Wings Over America is just such a formative record for me. Um, It really established my love of McCartney, which then blossomed into a love of the Beatles. Kind of the same way that Sgt. Pepper, the soundtrack, kind of was your entryway into into the Beatles catalog. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, my feeling is no matter how you get there, the fact that you got there is the, the important thing. Well, thanks for doing this with me. It's great to talk about the Sgt. Pepper record. Something I wasn't sure I would ever do.
0: <laughs> um, well, uh, thank you, thank you for agreeing to it
3: and for actually going through with it. Oh, absolutely! This is exactly the kind of thing that I try to get out of these episodes. Is and the more interesting the record is, mm-hmm. more obscure or whatever, the more I think the more interesting the story is, and that certainly is a great story. So, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for coming on the I'm in love with that song podcast. Thanks, Craig. Talk to you soon. Thank you.
0: Much appreciated and uh,
3: a true honor. Well, thanks. And that was my conversation with Craig Smith. You can listen to more of Craig over on the Pods and Sods Network. There's a ton of great content there. Highly recommended. This show will be back in two weeks with another new episode. You can find all of our previous episodes on our website lovethatsongpodcast.com, or just look for them in your favorite podcast player. You can leave a review on podchaser.com or share your thoughts and feedback with us on our Facebook page. Just look for the I'm in Love With That Song podcast on Facebook and you'll find us. And if you want to support this show, the best thing you can do is to tell a friend about it, because your recommendations are the best way to spread the word about this show. Thanks for listening to Craig Smith and myself on this episode, and I'll be back soon with another edition of the I'm in Love With That Song podcast.